Hey everyone, welcome to Beyond the Bio. We're glad you joined us today and excited to share a series that will not only dive deep into the stories of our exceptional leaders at Bain, but get into how we work together and how we aspire to be better as a firm through our operating principles. These core principles are what produced our outstanding results, empower our teams, and fuel the reason why we're consistently recognized as the best place to work. Join us as we break down our five operating principles through the voices of guests who live them in their everyday lives and in their careers at Bain. Today, I want to introduce you to Manny Maceda, our worldwide managing partner. Manny is responsible for all aspects of Bain's strategy, teams, operations, and our global offices. We're honored to have him join the show, not only to share his Bain journey, but to dive deep into this series on operating principles. Manny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Keith. I'm so glad I'm with you here. And Manny, I'm going to resist the urge to talk about the Warriors and, and Bay Area sports <laughs> and, and stick to the script that our team uh, asked us to stick to. And I want to start with the operating principles. Before I introduce them all one by one, you actually have an acronym, and maybe you can give us the acronym and what the operating principles are, and then we'll take a minute and dive into each one a little bit at a time. Just to make it easy to remember, we have five operating principles, and the acronym I use is TRADA sort of like an Italian luxury brand that's not authentic. T is for True North. So operating principle one is guided by True North. R is for results. The actual operating principle is passion for results. A is for at cost, for practical and at cost. D is for diverse teams, one bane. And A, the second A is for a bane never lets another bane fail. So True North results, at cost, diverse teams, a bane never lets another bane fail. Awesome. And let's walk through these one at a time, because as somebody who's been at Bain a long time, like you, these really are more than just a plaque on the wall in our lobby. And we've had several guests talk about how important they were at different steps of the way, which is why we thought we'd do a whole series exploring them a little bit more. And why don't we start with Guided by True North? I'm wearing, you can't see it, maybe we'll put a photo in the show notes, but a sweatshirt from 1996 with our old Compass logo on it today. <laughs> That's a little bit of the true North spirit sort of shining through our, our merch, if you will. But what is that operating principle about and how did it come to be? Yeah, operating principles, obviously, from a firm like ours uh, that's based on people, recruiting, uh, attracting, retaining, developing people. It's what defines our culture. Each of the five principles we have matter, and, and all of them, frankly, have some linkage to a key inflection point in our history. And True North, guided by True North, is the T. This actually was from a speech Arit Kadish, our chairman at the time, gave to the partnership when we were refounded in 1991. When I say refounded, Bain is 50 years old this year. We were started in 1973 by Bill Bain. But in 1991, 73 partners set the partnership that's today's Bain, after a period of intense distress, the principle that we shared was, we're going to do the right thing. It's going to be guided by our internal compass, a sense of true north, not magnetic north, in everything we do, in how we act with each other, and especially in how we act with our clients and telling them sometimes what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear, because that's what Bain should be about. That's the T, and that's uh, operating principle one, true north. And we will have Ivan Heinshaw on sharing some of his stories about times where he had to be true north as a leader at the firm in a subsequent episode. The R is passion for results. And this one I know is a differentiator from when I joined. We talk about results, not reports. But maybe you can expand a little bit on how this operating principle came to be and what it means to all of us. Yeah, and they're not necessarily uh, sequential, maybe, maybe because the acronym is harder to to create. But no, R goes back to the founding of the firm. In 1973, 
Bill Bain and six partners left the Boston Consulting Group to start a better consulting firm. And the premise at the time is consultants wrote reports and they may or may not have gotten implemented. And we thought it should be about results, actual outcomes. So getting to work into operations, into implementation, to helping clients actually get results from the uh, strategic advice consultants were given. That's still true to Bain today. So we can say, while the firm was refounded in 1991, you know, with the true North principle, it's still also about the firm that Bill started 50 years ago that still has a passion for results. And that's still true to how we think about our clients today. Now, the practical and at-cause operating principle, I usually talk in recruiting in shorthand and say, Bain people get excited about something that's 80% right and 100% doable than something that's 100% right and only lives in a spreadsheet. What does practical and at-cause mean to you and what has it meant throughout your career? I do think that part of it is that the practical part and then the at-cause part, they're related, but they're slightly different thoughts, mm-hmm. is right. about not being at effect on the uh, environment or circumstances around you but being at cost, to be the cause of change. This has some direct connectivity, obviously, to True North and and passion for results as well. Because if we are a set of people that are striving to make real change, real results happen, we're going to be at cost. We're not going to be at effect. This has some uh, connection to our history as well in the early 90s. After, you know, our mission statement was originally written in 1985, Keith, by the original founders, Bill Bain and that Mm -hmm. team. But we built the first set of operating principles in the early 90s to guide our behaviors then. There were, there mm-hmm. were about 10 of them. Obviously, as we refreshed them, we ended up with these five, Trada. But the only one of that 10 that's really in the new five is at cost. And uh, so being practical at cost, that still defines who Bain is today, both in how we work with each other, how we change the world, now we work with clients. It's really funny, Manny. As I read resumes, I look for how people talk about the experiences that they have. You know, when they were at another job, were they just doing stuff or were they driving change? Were they at cause in whatever they were doing? Because I think that speaks to the type of people that we look to hire. And those are the people that tend to be successful here. You know, and I hope as a firm, Keith, when I joined the firm with five offices, I felt that if I suggested something, even if I was, you know, a summer associate over in San Francisco, I could make a difference, not just in the office, but in the whole firm. Obviously, we're a much bigger firm today. I still believe that any individual at Bain, you know, if they're at cost with the right mindset, can make a difference in the whole firm. I very much want us to keep this one, even if we're a a much bigger company than the one you and I joined. 100%. The D was diverse teams. And I think this is one of the ones that was added to the original 10, but is now in in the five that we have. Can you talk a little bit about how this came about and what it means to everybody at Bain today? This is a natural evolution of what uh, diversity has meant to Bain, potentially to the world. You know, obviously the firm was started by, you know, seven straight white men, many of them from Harvard Business School in Boston. And in fact, even back then, Bill had a vision of diversity and he thought of different ways consultants can influence a client for him. That was diversity compared to what he had seen in other consulting firms. As we've all learned and executed in the world, we know that different people can bring diverse views and backgrounds and just create a much stronger firm. You know, we have a firm now where the, the managing partner can be a, can be a Filipino American, the uh, 
leader of recruiting, can be a Black American. You know, we can have women, gay, different races, different uh, countries, all helping lead this tapestry of what Bain is today. And not just in uh, demographic definitions, right. even Bill's original thought is still true. We can have people who have come from uh, different functions, MBAs, scientists, business functions. Diversity could also mean you could come to Bain from other firms, not just right. hired out of universities like you and I were. Right. Our most recent acquisition was a group of machine learning engineers from Australia. So diversity continues. And we thought this is a much more diverse firm globally. That means we're a much stronger firm. And so it's a very conscious thought. Each word matters. Think about it. Even though D is for diversity. Diverse teams. One, Bain. Teams is meaningful. Obviously, Bain is meaningful, but one, one Bain. Different units, different organizational constructs, different backgrounds. So diverse teams, one Bain. That's who Bain is today. You know, I would like to think Bill, even at his founding, would appreciate who we are today and how different this was from the seven folks who left, uh, who started this 50, 50 years ago. And for the last operating principle I want to cover, we actually are going to cover that in a future episode with two guests from our Iberia offices. But that's a Bainy never lets another Bainy fail. It's somewhat self-explanatory, but I'm going to ask you to elaborate on it anyway. Well, this is the one that you actually can't point to when it started. You know, most of the right. others you can. The founding, the speech, the original operating principles, the conscious effort. It sort of became this saying that seemed to spring naturally all around the world that came to describe how we would act if another Bainey asks us for help. You won't let them fail. I wonder sometimes, by the way, that it should be worded a little bit more positively. A baby right. <laughs> should always help another baby succeed. So this became just this colloquialism around the world that, mm -hmm. you know, we will all stand in and help each other whenever we need to. It's beautiful. It's something that, you know, even uh, in, in tough times, it, uh, it matters a lot. And, you know, even for me, uh, this a uh, couple of years ago, when because of circumstances in the world, we had to close our, our offices in Russia. We were able to bring most of that, uh, most of our team um, out of the country into other offices because mm -hmm. we were not going to let them fail. You know, that's probably the most right. ac acute version of this. And we're a much stronger firm because we're always focused on helping our teammates succeed. Yeah, this is one that it feels different to work here because you know everybody here buys into this one. I think we buy into all of our operating principles, but this is the one where day to day, it feels different because you can take that risk. You can try that thing. If you need help, you can ask a colleague and say, look, I know it's three in the morning, but I need you to join this call because the client really needs your expertise. I've done that for other colleagues. They've done it for me. It's just different to know that you have close to 20,000 people that all have your back. I totally agree. And, and not to feel guilty that you're asking your help because, you know, you kind of know you're paying it forward and paying it back. Someone, someone is likely to ask you for help too. And you're, <laughs> and you're happy to give it and you want to be asked, right? That's, uh, that's why our culture is so beautiful. So Manny, we've come to the point where after covering all the operating principles, I want to get to the place I usually start these conversations and talk a little bit about your background. Can you tell us about where you grew up? I grew up in Manila, 
the uh, capital of the Philippines and the other side of the Pacific country with now uh, uh, over 110 million people. You know, and then I came to the United States when I was 18 years old. You know, I had just finished my freshman year at the University of the Philippines and uh, you know, family circumstance triggered my, uh, my father having to uh, relocate here. I went to visit him for what I thought was this, for one summer, ended up 42 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> you never left. Now, I would never forgive myself if I didn't point out that when you came here, you came to the South Side, uh, right up the street from my house here in Chicago. How did you decide on coming to school on the South Side? I did, you know, so uh, I, I visited my dad after my freshman year. It was April 1981. And when he said, you know, we should explore having you just stay. So there were a few practical issues in having me stay. Number one, I had to find a university and I was studying engineering uh, that would accept me. We really couldn't fund it easily. He was still trying to eke out a living as, a, as an immigrant from the Philippines. You know, the Illinois Institute of Technology on the south side of Chicago, right next to what was Comiskey Park at the time, was not only accepted me, and I'm always grateful to them. They allowed my transferring um, all but one class of my credits from the University of the Philippines, so I could come in as a sophomore. They gave me a great financial aid and work package so that I could actually give it a shot. So I stayed there for my bachelor's, worked in the city or in Lamont. I remember I worked in a chemical uh, oil refinery in Lamont, Illinois. It was my, uh, my summer job as a chemical engineer. <laughs> and then I graduated. I got a good job coming out of college, which I appreciated. So uh, mm -hmm. I had to de mm -hmm. deal with stuff like learn about snow, you know, as someone from the Philippines. I, <laughs> it, it, was, it was fun for like the first two days. Then I, right, right, you know, right. That, it's cold. If you buy a coat, you get a nice hat, you get some gloves, it's not so bad. But Manny, you, you end up graduating from IIT here in Bronzeville, and then you start working. But you ended up going back to school. I like to say we were destined to meet each other at some point if it wasn't, if it wasn't later in my Bain career. But you ended up going to MIT for your MBA. Did you know what you wanted to do coming out of that, or did you have a plan? As a wannabe astronaut growing up in Manila, <laughs> Well, idolized Buzz Aldrin, of all people. I was a little bit of a nerd on, uh, on the Apollo 11 mission. I kind of wanted to go to MIT. So I was able to get in when I graduated to the business school, to the MIT Sloan School. And then I deferred my admission. Back then, you could still get into MBAs coming straight out of undergrad. Think about that. I don't think that really happens anymore now. Not a popular path, no. So I deferred my admission, went to work, and then, and then came in. You know, I expected I would go back into business. I had a nice job I enjoyed very much with the DuPont company uh, where I worked in Detroit and Wilmington, Delaware. I got to Cambridge, Massachusetts in the fall of 1987 and discovered an industry I never knew existed called right. management consulting. Basically, this is probably true of that entire generation. You show up at business school, you think you're supposed to study and all everyone's working on is their resume to start interviewing for summer jobs, either in consulting firms or investment banking firms. Right. And that fall of 1987, we had the biggest stock market crash percentage wise. So there were no summer associate jobs in investment banking the next summer. Right. right. And I was able to get a uh, several 
uh, job offers with consulting firms. I actually picked the smallest firm that gave me an offer for the summer. And I went to uh, Bain, San Francisco. We had two offices in the United States then, only Boston and San Francisco. And I was one of seven summer associates in the San Francisco office in 1988. 35 years later, I'm still at Bain and still kind of a member of the San Francisco office after all this time. So yeah, you don't know, you know, know how life will turn out. You never do. But let me ask you, and we've had a couple of guests talk about this in that era. Why did you go to the smallest of the three firms? And what was it about Bain that made you say, that's where I want to start my career? Because presumably you had options and you definitely didn't need to go to the smaller of the two offices. So what was it about that? Was it the weather again or? or? No, you know, it was obviously the, uh, there was an MBB at the time, believe it or not. The three big firms in the industry were called McKinsey, Booz Allen, and the Boston Consulting Group. I actually had offers from McKinsey and Booz, and I actually mm-hmm. liked Booz a lot. So, you know, they're, they're sort of not around anymore. What used to be MBB, McKinsey, Booz, BCG is now BBM, right? It's now Bain, BCG. McKinsey in terms of where people want to work. Today, I'd encourage people to join the best firm in the industry, the, the, the first B. You know, but the reason I picked this firm is uh, has a lot to do maybe with the operating principles we talked about. Right. The people I met felt different. If you created a simple analytic spreadsheet of do you like the people you interview with or meet, you know, you can put a check on everyone at Bain and not as many in the other firms. And, um, you know, in San Francisco in particular, where the folks who uh, were interested in me, who, some of whom continue to be my best friends in the world. We had a young uh, uh, MBA uh, case team leader who ran the summer program of seven summer associates. His name is John Donahoe. You know, he's now the CEO of Nike. That group uh, convinced me, hey, come join us. I said, great. I get to spend 10 weeks in San Francisco. It was cold in Boston. So it turns out San Francisco can be cold too, but that's okay. I did not know that until I went out there in December. It's like, oh, I should have brought a coat. You know, Manny, there's a lot of things we could talk about career-wise in the cases that you've done, but I want to talk about some of the leadership roles that you have. And on a lot of these episodes, we talk about servant leadership, but you've had a lot of servant leader roles before you became our worldwide managing partner. And can you talk a little bit about some of those roles and, and why they were important and how they fit into your career journey? Because presumably you could just do client work and be fine. You can take one leadership role and say, I checked that box. Thank you. I'm going to get back to my clients. But you've continued to take on really big leadership roles at the firm as well. So maybe you could walk us through a little bit of that journey and how you thought about it. You know, I did, Keith, but with the nuance that also I always felt the purest way we serve our firm is to be a good client serving partner. Yes. You know, so I spent the majority of my time always serving clients. And, you know, I've talked about that. But I also felt, you know, I had this mindset for clients that's around full potential, help them get to their full potential. And so I said, you know, I should think about what's the full potential of Bain. So my my mental model uh, after I became a partner was roughly if I can spend 20 to 25 percent of my time helping Bain in some way achieve its full potential. And a lot of the things that we've also talked about in operating principles, in client service, in building practices, in talent, in training, in recruiting, that would be a a good balance. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to serve the firm, you know, often for two, three, four years at a time in a series of roles that were usually 20 or 25%. The, The only time I ever went to more than 50 in management and leadership was in this job, the worldwide managing partner job. But you know, my 
one of my first line jobs was your job. You know, back then we were small mm-hmm. enough I could do it with 20 or 25% of my time. The global recruiting job. I helped start our horizontal uh, capability areas. You know, we call them capabilities. These are the practices that are not about industries, but they're about the products we sell to our clients. Strategy, performance improvement, organization. I helped found and lead the performance improvement practice. Right. Uh, same thing in the global transformation practice. I dabbled a little bit in ge- geographic leadership when Steve uh, Ellis asked me to chair the Asia Pacific region, which I was you know, excited to do, given that's where some of my, my roots were. We also, besides leadership, we're a privately owned firm that is owned and led by our partners. We have governance committees that help lead the firm. We have a board of directors, just like a public company, except it's all internal. We have a nominating committee. We have an operating committee that runs the firm day to day. So I've been a board member. I've been a nominating committee member. But I always wanted to have my the primacy of what I did be client service. Till in 2017, the firm asked me to, uh, to become the worldwide managing partner. And I was excited to do it in our, in our process they invite a few people for consideration. <laughs> you, you know, you use the proverb, I'll throw my hat in the ring. I thought it would be a valuable and service-oriented thing to do for this firm that's nurtured me and built me. And then they asked me to do it. I said, great. But when you took that role, I had worked on one of your cases, geez, in telecom, I think when I was in AC in the late 90s, I was on a deep down in a client that you were you were leading. But I know that you are passionate about your clients. I know you're passionate about everything that you talked about. And you would bring that same passion to the global leadership role that you're playing today. When you took that role in 2018, the world certainly was different. But what were your priorities coming into that? Because we were still seeing a lot of change happening around us in the world and technology and what our clients expected. And you took over a firm that had been growing pretty well for a long time. How do you set priorities when you step into a role like that? I thought of Bain to some degree how I would think of a client. And I said, okay, now you're not just advising a CEO. You get to be the CEO. By the way, I've also gotten good Bain advisors. So I, you know, I've, I would like to think that besides being a CEO, I've become a good client of Bain. And obviously I can get, I can get case teams uh, working for, for me at a, <laughs> at a very reasonable price. Just like the way I think about the client, I had a perspective that while we were succeeding, you know, we had grown to be part of the new MBB. We had been growing 10, 11% per year for the prior decade, gaining share, becoming a real global firm. But I didn't think we were yet on the path to what I would call our full potential. And so I, I came in with, you know, just like I would do with a client with a perspective. I Obviously, I listened. I talked to a lot of people. I had views. I applied a version of the playbook that we would do to our clients ourselves. I wanted to start by recommitting to our mission. You've probably talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. It is one of the things that attracted me to this smaller firm that we had this aspirational mission statement. I wanted to have the firm recommit to a set of operating principles that guide what we do. And then I built a strategy to basically sustainably achieve that mission that we we simply called internally out-team and out-innovate in order to outgrow. So by having this best team of diverse bainies, 
innovating with their best capabilities to serve the clients. We are going to meaningfully outgrow our competition, not because that's a good thing to do, although you and I are competitive and we always want the Golden State Warriors to beat the LA Lakers or whatever their current rivals happen to be. But it's not about that necessarily. It's to get the outcome you'd like, right? Which is right. really serve the needs of our clients. And I'm quite excited and I'm hopeful in the five plus years I've been doing this role, we've been able to do that. And obviously we've inflected a lot. You're still the best place to work. Uh, we changed your growth rate from average 10% to average 15. We've doubled in size in five years. We've chosen to grow not just uh, organically, but inorganically, which is an even better way if you do it right. We're doing that you know, with an even higher level of net promoter score as a measure of client satisfaction with their work, and employee promoter score, which is a measure of our talent loyalty. You know, and I really wanted to sharpen the linkage in our firm between talent and client, which is the secret sauce of Bain. We do that better than not just any other consulting firm in the industry, I argue. You know that almost better than any firm in the world. If you can attract and retain and develop the best people, guess what? You can attract and retain the best clients. And we've been able to do that for 50 plus years now. Manny, thanks for sharing a lot of your personal journey. And I want to take us back to the theme for this whole series. I know it's a bit like asking you to pick your favorite child. But if you had to choose, which operating principle would resonate with you most or would you highlight today? Because I realize it might be different tomorrow because we have to give them all their, <laughs> all their shine. Well, I think that the second one, the R, uh, results, passion for results, is the one that's most about clients. You know, If you look at the various operating principles, most of them uh, are about people, are about team, stuff we do. The one that's clearest to the reason... <laughs> The Horizon Datra, we have a company, is because our clients need us, because our clients want to use our services and work with us. And so for that reason, passion for results is probably, for me, my, my favorite operating principle. And it's closest to the original core of why Bain exists, why we still exist. It's game-changing, it's transformative. Both words matter. All three, actually, but yes, passion to really care, to really be driven, to get the kind of results that uh, our clients can get only with working with us. And that's really what they need to get their, their full potential. What didn't jump off the page at me when I first read these, when I joined the firm, and I totally get now that I've been here for so long, is client isn't just the logo on the building or the stock. It sometimes, for a lot of us, includes all of the individual executives that we're working with. And we talk about client success. You know, I want the project that I'm working on to be successful, but I want the executives that I'm working with to be successful in their careers as well. It's about results on all those dimensions, including results for my team and the rewards and recognition they get, the promotions and the career opportunities they get. The results for me has been really expansive. And I know you've impacted a lot of people's careers both inside and outside of Bain. Are there some examples or, or anecdotes that you might share with people to really bring this to life for them? 
Well, I, I think the definition of uh, who a client is is probably what you're alluding to. So I, I say, so yes, I, I should build on that a little bit. Clients for us, they're not just corporations. They're different kinds of organizations. They could be nonprofit organizations that we're doing social impact work with. They could be universities, you know, with their higher ed practice. And they could be investors, you know, both private equity, alternative asset management, and, and they could be corporations. All of those can be clients of Bain as institutions. But you're right, clients at Bain are also individuals. And that's part of the secret to our business around loyalty, both our talent and the client. Because loyalty is not built, it obviously could be reinforced of a big company and Bain have a long-term relationship. But in the middle of those relationships are bonds that are built between the CEO and a partner, the CFO and a partner, between the leader of a project and associate principal or, an, an, or a senior manager, or literally it could be an AC or a consultant or an EA who has a good relationship with the client's EA. Those relationships and the passion we have for results it needs to ideally tie back to the overall client organization will get great results. The company will become more valuable. The company will become a leader in its space. But th those company-wide results are generally, you know, aggregations of a lot of individual success stories. You know, someone you work with actually achieves their ambition, becomes a better leader, a better executive. If the job definition's right, could be to be a good CEO or to be a good board member, you know, or to be a good leader of talent or recruiting. And many of those people could become the best fit, the full potential of their career might actually be in a different company. To now watch and see, we have so many clients that have been able to, as client executives and leaders who have moved organizations and have worked with Bain everywhere they go. That's because they see the passion for results is not just about the results of the entire enterprise. It's the results for them as the individual. You know, and I've seen many stories and many like that. You know, I've been privileged to work with some clients who've gone across different organizations. And there's also stories of people we worked with that, you know, you and I might've worked with when we were a manager. And now as we progressed, they progressed too. If you had told me that my supervisor, the guy who made sure I knew where the bathrooms were when I was a summer associate, you know, 35 <laughs> years ago, would become the Sea of Bain. By the way, I also became the Sea of eBay and ServiceNow and Nike. And we've had a chance, the privilege to work with John mm -hmm. multiple in multiple companies. That's the, uh, that's the specialness of the passion we have for results, not just for companies, but for individuals. Many thanks. That's a really great summary of this operating principle, and a lot of it relates to me. I obviously worked with you in my current role, but I worked with John when we were launching a lot of our diversity initiatives. And way back uh, in the late 90s, uh, I like to say the late 1900s, baby me was working with Saul at one of the telcos that you mentioned. So it's all a part of the journey and it's all woven together. I want to thank you for helping us kick off this series on the operating principles. They're hugely important to Bain, hugely important to everyone that works here. And you taking time out of your schedule to share and expand on them is much appreciated. Hey, you know, spending time with you, I say this in the best compliment, it's always a source of energy for me. And one of the secrets to Bain is 
there's always stuff in what we do here that are sources of energy. Sometimes there's going to be uses, you know, that's uh, not mm-hmm. every job is otherwise we'd like be nuclear fusion machines or something. But the fact that anytime I have a chance to just spend time with you, Keith, and whether it's recruiting or just other stuff, I come out more energized. So I, I do appreciate you involving me in this uh, podcast. And thank you for everything you've done to make Bain such a great place to work and have such great talent. So you're the best man. Thanks.